Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, today's topic is going to be on glutathione. I know glutathione is uh, something that is getting a lot of attention uh, recently, but it's also one of the most important nutraceuticals that um, many people that work with chronic patients have been using for, for, for many, many years. So the key thing about glutathione, it's basically the key antioxidant in the, in the body. And glutathione is found in all the different tissues in the body, and glutathione is found in all different cells in the body. And one of the key things about glutathione is that it really helps prevent against free radical production and oxidative stress. So what I'd like to do is, uh, uh, before we take questions, is just to give you some fundamental background in glutathione and tell you um, what was published about it before um, the pandemic with COVID-19 and then talk about some of the recent uh, papers that have come out with COVID-19 and then talk about um, the applications and, and, and you know, being a little bit critical of what's been published on it so far and what you need to know about it and so forth so to kind of help um, with the confusion. Now, for the key thing, the main thing you want to really understand about glutathione is that it's, uh, it is um, something that our body makes all throughout uh, our cells and our tissues. And glutathione uh, has many functions. So one of the main functions is known as that it's an antioxidant. So it protects against free radicals. So free radicals are what destroys tissues when we have an inflammatory response. The other key thing about glutathione is that it is an important uh, immune modulator. So um, the most important cells for autoimmunity are regulatory T cells. And regulatory T cells modulate the expression of autoimmune disease, of how active it is, if it goes into relapse or remission. And the regulatory T cells of the immune system have lots of receptors for glutathione. So glutathione has a direct effect on these regulatory T cells, and therefore not only is it, anti is it an antioxidant, but it's also a very powerful immune modulator. The other key thing that glutathione does is that glutathione is involved with what's called phase two biotransformation. And biotransformation is the ability to take compounds that are uh, toxic or pollutant substances and then uh, convert them into an end product that the body can eliminate. So we do that through what's called the phase one and phase two pathway in the liver. We also have that with um, enzymes in the microbiome that do that. So when we get exposed to certain pollutants um, like an air pollution or pollutants in our environment, glutathione plays a role um, for some substances to help clear that out of our body. So if you can, you know, take a big, you know, step back and take a glutathione, glutathione does a lot of really amazing things. It's a very powerful antioxidant, supports our regulatory immune cells, and helps with biotransformation pathways. And what they've done with the studies is they found that glutathione um, is a key factor in causing neurodegeneration when levels get depleted. Glutathione is depleted with all types of inflammatory uh, conditions. So whether it's a upper respiratory infection or a gastrointestinal infection or um, whether it's uh, oxidative stress um, from radiation, whether it is uh, an autoimmune disease, um, 
that glutathione levels get depleted when there's a chronic inflammatory state. And that's pretty much the role of an antioxidant. So we get in chronic levels of inflammation, the inflammation starts to uh, create free radicals and free radicals destroy our tissues. And one of the things that glutathione does, it basically um, helps with electron transfers, so that neutralizes the free radicals so it doesn't destroy our tissues. Now, the other interesting thing is about glutathione are that glutathione levels um, the production or the enzymes that are used to make glutathione, the total levels of glutathione we have, go down um, by every decade. So the glutathione levels we had when we were 10 are different than when we were 20 and 30 and 40 and 50. So as we get older, our um, glutathione levels uh, tend to go down, as, as with most antioxidant systems. Now, there are some really um, interesting things about glutathione. So I'll talk to you about what foods can raise glutathione. I'll talk to you about... Uh, um, what nutraceuticals have been shown to raise glutathione. But the key thing with glutathione, before we get any further, is there's some lifestyle factors that have a huge impact on glutathione. So the more inflamed you are, the more glutathione depletion you'll have. That's just a basic concept. So if you're dealing with an inflammatory disease, you're going to have glutathione depletion to some degree. If you're dealing with an infection, you're going to have some, you're going to have some glutathione um, depletion to some degree. If you have an inflammatory diet, you're going to have some glutathione depletion to some degree. So, you know, we all have different states of inflammation or, or, or antioxidant um, but some degree of inflammation and some degree of antioxidant production. We want to balance those two out. Now, um, uh, if you get a chance to check out uh, my website, Dr. K News, drknews.com, I've written articles on glutathione, and I have something called an Immune Resilience Program, which is a free program, and it talks about things you can do from diet and lifestyle to make an impact in, in glutathione, I mean, in, in your immune system. And within that, I talk about how important sleep is to your immune function and, and the reasons why. But there's also research that shows that your antioxidant systems, your glutathione levels, your, your glutathione enzyme-producing systems become dysfunctional when, you're, when you don't get enough sleep. So sleep is critical in monitoring the immune system in different ways, which we talk about in the Immune Resilience Program, if you want to check that out. But one of the other things is that sleep has an impact on glutathione, and so does exercise, which is another key factor when we talk about immune strategies for immune resilience. So when you exercise, you also increase your antioxidant enzyme-producing system. So sleep and exercise are like one of the two main ways to, to naturally raise your glutathione. So if you take a person who's like really inflamed, has lots of inflammation, is around air pollution or smokes a lot, and they don't exercise, they don't sleep well, and then they have a diet where they're low in vegetables, especially vegetables that are high in sulfur, or vegetables that help uh, produce precursors for glutathione. So basically um, garlic, um, onion, uh, broccoli, cabbage, kale, those are all the things that help raise glutathione levels from diet. So if you take someone on a fast food diet and they're sedentary and don't sleep well, then their glutathione level is going to be way down. Now you add an infection on top of that or pollution on top of that or environmental toxicity on top of that, you get a person who's really in bad shape. Now one of the biggest clues that someone may actually have antioxidant depletion that we see clinically is a person, for example, that just um, is always inflamed, their body always hurts, they're always tired, they're always run down. Those are the states of chronic inflammation. And one of the other key things is a major red flag is if they exercise, they just don't recover very well. So there's some people who exercise um, and they just crash for days and days and days. For some people, it's just a brisk walk. For other people, it could just be a 20-minute uh, exercise. Um, but they actually feel dramatically worse. Now, remember, what, what happens in exercise is you actually produce free radicals. 
and then uh, at a much higher load uh, in the first uh, uh, hour or two when you're exercising or afterwards and then it's but and then you get this massive activation of um, antioxidant producing enzymes that go to thiamine to counteract that exercise induced inflammation which lasts for 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 many hours afterwards so even though you get some free radicals produced by exercise your anti-inflammatory system antioxidant system comes in and really quenches that that response this is why exercise is so beneficial um to raise your glutathione levels and uh, your antioxidants. However, if you uh, don't have the ability to activate them because you don't have the precursors and mechanisms to allow that to happen, then you can you can typically crash. So um, those are the key things with glutathione. Now, glutathione, we've been using it for many years in clinical practice, uh, myself and many clinical nutritionists, functional medicine practitioners um, that practice an evidence-based model. Because glutathione is such a um, has such good research on its ability to work as an antioxidant and quench inflammation, and uh, you know uh, it's so important for things like autoimmunity and so forth. Now there were some interesting studies that glutathione um, published. I'll just summarize with you really quickly. First of all, they've done studies where they put a pathogen in the gut barrier, and they find out that the gut barrier doesn't actually break down until glutathione levels are depleted. So, you know, we've all heard of things like leaky gut or intestinal permeability. So when we get something that triggers an inflammatory response against our gut, whether it's gluten for a celiac disease person or an infection or pathogen, the gut barrier doesn't actually break down until glutathione levels get depleted. They've done similar things with pollutants and the pulmonary system of the lungs. Um, so the key thing with uh, glutathione is that glutathione um, levels have been shown to break down with not only the gut barrier, but the lung barrier, um, and also the blood-brain barrier. So um, whether you have a free radical, a chemical, a pathogen, it's just systemic inflammation, the barrier system doesn't break down until glutathione levels are depleted. Now, this is important because there have been some studies now where they've looked at the clusters of significant outbreaks of um, COVID-19, and they, they have mapped them out with really also being areas where there's a high degree of air pollution. And other studies in the past have shown that air pollution does significantly deplete glutathione. So, you know, there's some inferences and there's some, some theories where, you know, areas where there's high amounts of pollution, then you can deplete glutathione levels that can open up the barriers. And that's one of, that's one of the pathophysiology of, of um, uh, coronavirus gets to be you know, more extreme. So, as you guys know, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, viral um, organism binds to angiotestin uh, uh, receptors throughout the body, and it's found in the lungs too, and then the lungs break down, and then this inflammatory cascade takes place. So, one of the theories out there is that one of the, in, in the nutritional world and preventive medicine world is that um, people that already have reduced glutathione, which are people with pre-existing conditions like diabetes or people that smoke, people that have an inflammatory condition, people that are recovering from malignancy. Um, they're not just that their immune system is weak, but their actual glutathione are really depleted. And that in combination with areas that have air pollution and then the infection can be something that really creates, orchestrates significant risk and responses. Now, as far as what's been published on glutathione, there hasn't been anything like dramatic published on glutathione in the literature. Um, there, there is. If you go to clinicaltrials.gov, where people register clinical trials uh, before they do them, there is a non, there's a non-randomized study with about 
86 participants where they're going to do IV and acetylcysteine to raise glutathione with COVID-19 patients that are severe, but that study hasn't been published. Besides that, there's just been a, a, a case report with two patients published where they showed um, people that have severe COVID-19 symptoms, if they're given um, compounds like N-acetylcysteine to raise their glutathione, their, their symptoms seem to improve. And there was a Russian researcher that, that did a really great review, and he theorized, um, published a paper where he theorized that people that have COVID-19 may become severe because of glutathione depletion. He wrote an excellent paper on that, and he reviewed the reasons and mechanisms behind it, and he had given some examples of some patients that went from um, minor symptoms to severe uh, as their glutathione levels were depleted, but it was just a few sample subjects. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of it. So we don't have, like, these major breakthrough research on glutathione being done. So uh, it's not necessarily um, there yet as far as the evidence goes. But, you know, so the other key thing about glutathione is that um, – is that how do you raise it? Some people question, what do I do? How do I raise it? So there's lots of things that can be used to raise glutathione, and basically you break them down into nutrients, um, sulfur amino acids, uh, botanicals, and so forth. So the main nutrients that have some benefit on raising glutathione are selenium and vitamin C as micronutrients. Um, and then there's botanicals like cordyceps is a is a botanical that's been shown to raise glutathione levels. Uh, Guticola has been shown to raise glutathione levels. Uh, a botanical called milk thistle has been shown to raise glutathione levels. And then sulfur amino acids like alpha lipoic acid and N-acetylcysteine have also been shown to raise glutathione levels. Now, um, whey protein has been shown to raise glutathione levels too, but whey protein is really inflammatory for many people, so I, I really don't recommend that. Um, and if you look at all the things that have the biggest impact and, and you look at cost and you're trying to figure out if I want to take one thing to raise my glutathione levels, what's the easiest and fastest way to do it uh, and cheapest way to do it? And that would be N-acetylcysteine. So you can find N-acetylcysteine at pretty much every health food store. And, you know, dosages of uh, 1,500 milligrams would be a good dose, and that would raise glutathione levels. Some people take more, but 1,500 milligrams, you're going to have some impact in raising glutathione levels. So um, if you're trying to figure out, like, what to use to raise glutathione, that's one way. Now, there are glutathione supplements available um, also, uh, and glutathione is a, a tripeptide amino acid. It's glutamic acid, cysteine, and glycine. But the glutamic acid and, and, and glycine are very easy for the body to make naturally. What they really need is that sulfur, that N-acetylcysteine. And that's also why it's so important to have diets very high in sulfur uh, precursors, like, like we said earlier, uh, garlic, onions, cauliflower, uh, cabbage, kale. Those things can all can all be supportive to, to, to raise levels. And then sleep and exercise are also really critical. So... Um, Actual glutathione itself is very hard to absorb. So typically when you just take an acetylcysteine, you get the precursor you really need to make that building block of glutathione. When you actually buy glutathione as a supplement, it's much more expensive than, um, than N-acetylcysteine. Um, and eventually what's going to happen is that glutathione you take is going to be broken down to glutamic acid, glycine, and cysteine, and then you're going to use the cysteine to, to build it. Now, there's, there's another version of glutathione called acetylglutathione, which you can use. Acetylglutathione does, ha, has been shown to absorb through the gut. And even better, there's been a form of glutathione called liposomal glutathione, which is a, a liquid form of glutathione that can go through the gut. 
So for me personally, if I'm going to actually use glutathione, I like to use a liposomal acetylglutathione, and that seems to have a really good way to absorb into the system and really, uh, and really work. If you don't have that available to you, uh, a liposomal acetylglutathione, because not many manufacturers make that, then I would just use NAC. But the liposomal acetylglutathione, I think, is one of the very best ways to do it. And then number two would be uh, N-acetylcysteine. My wife is cracking up at me. <laughs> oh, she's, okay. Uh, so, anyways, so those are the those are the those are the ways to to raise glutathione. Now, um, I can tell you, like in our family, we we take we even take we take glutathione every single morning, every day. My daughter, my wife, since my daughter was basically able to digest food, she was taking a liquid trisomal trisomal glutathione because it's such beneficial benefits. So, I can only tell you is that we don't have any direct research published anywhere in the literature where they have shown COVID-19 can be impacted by glutathione other than a couple case reports where some people have some theories and it's not sufficient evidence. The clinical trial that's going to be done will be interesting, but they're doing six grams of N-acetylcysteine IV, so that may not be practical for uh, information that uh, could be generalizable to the whole population. But at the end of the day, um, it's not, you know, it's a safe way, it's something to consider, and it's one of the ways, some of the mechanisms that can explain why there are some subgroups that are potentially, uh, uh, you know, having significant symptoms. So I, I think there's some validity in that too. If I, if I were to look at uh, the evidence and the, and the mechanism involved, I think one of the major reasons were patients that have a viral infection um, tend to progress into a severe state and some don't. Um, one of the mechanisms may be for some people, but not for everyone, because I think there's some genotypes that may respond to the virus differently, uh, is whether they have enough reserve of glutathione to protect your lung barriers, whether they have enough glutathione to protect, prevent as what's called the cytokine storm, the inflammatory cascade, and whether they have enough glutathione to, um, uh, to modulate their immune system with those T-Rex cell activations. So those are all the... The, the best things there. Okay, so I can try to take some questions. Uh, those are the key summary things that I was, I was hoping at least to cover as a baseline. So, Lisa says, when's the best time to take glutathione? When's the best time to take glutathione? Yeah. Anytime. So glutathione is one of those things where, um, you know, you want to get into your system. With antioxidants, you know, sometimes uh, the more oxidative stress you produce for yourself, uh, you know, the, the more demands you have. So if you have an inflammatory response because you react to certain foods, um, if you exercise a lot, uh, you know, you may want to take more. Some people can take double doses, but at, you know, for the most part, simply, you know, you can just take it any time throughout the day. There hasn't been any real research published where it shows taking in the morning or taking in the afternoon has any, any better effect than, than any other time. Okay. Next question. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, Nikki, can you take selenium, vitamin C, and glutathione? Can you take too much? Can you take selenium, vitamin C, and glutathione together? Um, okay, so if can you, you take too much? So you, if you take, yes, you can. So uh, if you take too much vitamin C, uh, so when you start getting into the five thousand milligrams or more, you can end up with. Uh, watery bowel movements and diarrhea. 
So that's the key thing with vitamin C is that there's a point where uh, it's going to really increase your, uh, your your bowel activity. So there's something that where some people do with vitamin C is they go up to bowel tolerance and then they back off. So for people, it's usually around the four to 5,000 milligrams. So if you take more than that, then you may have that adverse reaction. Um, selenium, you know, the top, the top people can get selenium overload, um, but the the upper safe limit is 400 micrograms per day um, as an acceptable standard. So you want to keep it below there, and then glutathione. There's no significant side effects with taking too much glutathione because it's just a tripeptide amino acid found throughout the body. You could just end up spending a lot of money uh, with with overdosing on those three ingredients. And same with N-acetylcysteine. N-acetylcysteine is an abundant uh, sulfur amino acid found in your body. Um, you know, you can take 5,000 or more milligrams of it and not have any issues, even though with 1,500 milligrams, you can actually see um, significant change in glutathione levels. Okay. Um, Heidi, for someone with acid reflux, what is the best form? I have IBS slash SIBO and recently started having acid reflux. Well, I don't, I, you know, your acid reflux and your inflammatory, so the question is if someone has inflammatory bowel disease and acid reflux, what's the best form to take glutathione? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, whatever, just the fact you have an inflammatory bowel condition, you're going to deplete glutathione as soon as you take it because it's going to be used to quench the inflammation in your gut. So, the, you know, the key thing with glutathione is it's not like um, we know a disease-specific disease amount we should take. It all has to do with the fire. So think of like if you have an inflammatory condition, um, the the inflammation is like fire throughout a forest. How much water does it take to put out the fire? For some people, um, they need to take more than other people. Now, the other key thing with glutathione is not everyone has a noticeable difference when they take it, but the ones that that do gives it's a, it's a clinical red flag whenever we see that that they really need an antioxidant protection so some people will, will take glutathione and go wow i feel a lot better and i think i just have more energy all of a sudden and it's pretty quick it's within the first 20 30 minutes and for them then we're like well then dose up and then they dose up and go to a higher dose and then they find that maybe it's not 1500 milligrams it's 3000 where they really feel the best but when they take about 4000 that's not really different than three so that's kind of be the dose for example for their n-acetylcysteine um, and then there's a majority of people that are already pretty healthy, and they pretty and they have pretty good antioxidant systems. And if they take glutathione, they just go, I don't, I don't notice anything, and that's okay. Like uh, um, in our family, we take glutathione all the time. It's not like we get a big buzz or feeling from taking glutathione or N-acetylcysteine. Um, but for people that have lots of inflammation or chronic diseases, sometimes they notice a difference. So how you respond to glutathione can give you a clue. So if you have an inflammatory bowel condition and so forth, um, you may want to play with the doses. You may need more than 1,500 milligrams to have some type of impact for you. But some people with significant inflammation, you know, we have them go on not only in acetylcysteine and vitamin C and selenium and milk thistle. We'll use a combination of all those things and, and then like a acetylglutathione or a trapezoidal trisomal glutathione all at the same time tried to calm down an inflammatory cascade. Okay, from Elaine. Can you talk about intramuscular shots of glutathione? Some people are getting some people are getting from their doctors. Is that better than oral? So the other thing with so um, the question is what can I can I talk about intramuscular shots with glutathione? Okay, so there's different ways to take glutathione. You can take oral supplements, um, like we talked about, to raise glutathione, actual glutathione, but preferably in a liposomal form or an acetyl glutathione form, or things that raise glutathione, like an acetylcysteine alpha lipoic acid, uh, milk thistle, guticala, uh, cordyceps, 
and the nutrients like vitamin C, selenium. Those are all the things that help your body raise glutathione levels. Or you can get IV glutathione, um, and typically people will use the drip bag and uh, they get an IV glutathione treatment, or you can get an intramuscular injection. Whether you do IV or intramuscular injection, um, there's a, what's going to happen in that state is you're going to have a huge burst of glutathione into your system, but it's going to not last for, for a long period of time. For people that have significant acute inflammatory reactions, um, IV would probably be the best approach. Um, so like if someone is in a cytokine storm from an inflammatory cascade, that would be a good way to, to, to address that. The clinical trial that they're doing is they're doing IV, and IV versus intramuscular is still going to get um, glutathione right into the bloodstream. So it doesn't matter. It just depends on how, how you want to do it. IV glutathione just... IV glutathione and the intramuscular is just a push, so it's you're over, it's done really quickly. IV glutathione uh, in a drip bag, you know, people sit in bat, sit in chair for 45 minutes with the glutathione mixed in a saline bag, and it just uh, they'll have to you know the treatment can last 45 to a minute, about how fast the drip is going. So um, even if people do a drip or intramuscular injection, oral strategies to raise glutathione work extremely well. They're just not getting that huge load that's taking place. Okay, so Sean says in that vein, does IV glutathione downregulate the body's natural production of glutathione? Does it lead to issues long-term or is it safe and effective to do regularly? So the other question that comes up regularly, which is, was just asked by Chris. Sean. Sean. So take, you know, there's no, there's no significant finding that taking glutathione or, or taking precursor glutathione are going to deplete your own natural production of glutathione. That just doesn't happen. So your body is going to make glutathione as it needs it, but if it's circulating around in your system, it's just fine. Now, um, the key thing with actual glutathione production is that you have the precursor fuel, and the, the key precursor is really sulfur, uh, N-acetylcysteine, um, or sulfur foods in your diet, in combination with sleep, because you have to activate your glutathione enzyme, enzyme systems to work properly, in combination uh, with, with physical activity, especially exercise, because that boosts up your antioxidant enzyme producing system. So the combination of those things are really critical. If you take exogenous glutathione, um, you're not going to shut down your glutathione producing system. Um, it, just, it just doesn't happen. Okay. Um, can you talk, from Nancy, can you talk about the two forms of NAC. The, the two forms of NAC, um, they're all both going to work to raise glutathione. Any form of NAC you take is going to have an impact on raising glutathione. And uh, there's just not enough evidence one is really better than the other. So okay. just take it. <laughs> okay. Um, any top brands you, you want, you like, people, a lot of people asking, what's your top brand you like? No. Um, I really don't want to talk about specific brand names. I really want to try to keep these talks commercial free. So I, I really don't want, I just want to talk about the research, um, if you guys don't mind. Okay. Um, nebulizing glutathione. People, a lot of people just keep asking, what about oh, nebulizing glutathione? Right, so that's another way to take glutathione, I forgot to mention. Nebulizing glutathione is where you use a nebulizer and you put glutathione in and you breathe in, breathe in that way. Um, and that may have some promise with some upper respiratory types of infection because you can really breathe in the glutathione. Um, for some for some people, the sulfur uh, act irritates their lungs and they actually get coughing and feel awful when they take it. Um, so that's the only concern with that. So I mean, when we look at glutathione. Actually, you can take it. You can take it to a nebulizer. You can take it. You can have it delivered IV. You can have it delivered intramuscularly. You can do 
They even have uh, the suppositories, vaginal and anal suppositories to raise glutathione levels. Uh, and then you can take it with supplements, the actual compound or the nutrients and precursors. All different ways to raise glutathione. Um, but for most people, the easiest way would be something like N-acetylcysteine, uh, vitamin C, uh, selenium, glutacolo, bilk thistle, or something like a liposomal glutathione. Those are the best ways to, to do it for most people that uh, don't have access to IV or intramuscular or to a nebulizer. Okay, a lot of people are asking, can we check glutathione levels in the blood? Can you check glutathione levels in the blood? You can check glutathione levels in the blood, but it is dynamic. So um, it can change and vary from day to day. So it's not like one of these things where you measure glutathione and it's like that way for you all the time. So there are labs where they look at something called the ratio between what's called oxidized glutathione and reduced glutathione. Um, and they can look at those ratios and give a clue of what your glutathione levels are. Um, so those tests have been used in some research circles. Um, they're quite expensive and they, they kind of fluctuate. And uh, it just doesn't seem to make much of a difference when you look at those tests. Also, when you do measure those tests, what you'll also find is it's not the amount of glutathione that changes that. So if you have a person who's got an abnormal glutathione ratio on lab blood work, they're from oxidized to reduced, indicating the glutathione status. Um, giving more and more glutathione doesn't necessarily change that. What actually changes that is reducing the overall inflammatory load. So realize that glutathione is just fighting the free radical oxidative stress inflammatory response. But what's, what's causing that is also one of the key factors of why it's being depleted. So for example, you could have someone who has uh, gluten sensitivity and they keep eating gluten and that causes chronic inflammation for them. Well, that chronic inflammation is going to deplete their glutathione levels. So, you, you know, dosing with glutathione may not change their serum levels, um, but once they actually get off gluten, like, boom, right away, those levels improve dramatically. So what we find with uh, glutathione biomarkers is that you don't see much change specifically with supplementation. You see, you see change when you reduce the inflammatory load. Okay, next question. Uh, can you spell N-acetyl? N a n hyphen a c e t uh, y l c y s t e i n e and acetylcysteine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You mentioned Amy says you mentioned liposomal. Oh, by the way, NAC. You can just type in NAC nutrient and you'll see it everywhere, like Amazon or wherever your source is. So most people you just refer to to NAC, uh, and as a new NAC nutrient, you're gonna find all the links. Okay. Um, Amy says, you mentioned liposomal. She, I've heard a couple of clinicians remark they have not seen a strong benefit compared to whole food version of C in particular. Is liposomal worth a significant extra cost? For me, I, I absolutely think liposomal is worth the, worth the effect. I can only tell you as a clinician. They haven't done studies where they compare one form of glutathione delivery to the other. So there's the part of it where you can hear different preferences from different practitioners and different people taking it with different experiences. And from my bias and from my experience, um, liposomal glutathione it works works uh, fantastic. Okay. Um, how does one accurately determine if they have enough glutathione or not? How does one determine if you have enough glutathione? Um, just assume. Uh, so it depends on what your goals are. Um, so again, you can do a lab test to kind of give you ratios, but the lab test is uh, um, dynamic and changes even 
hour to hour. Um, so it's not as stable as you would think. So that's one way. The other key thing is if you just have an inflammatory condition, you can raise glutathione. But I can tell you, like myself, my daughter, my wife, we all have been taking glutathione for forever. Um, my, you know, my daughter's 14. She's been taking it since she was probably two. Every day, every morning, every day. She doesn't have, we don't measure her levels being low. We don't measure, we don't assume she has symptoms of, she doesn't have an inflammatory condition. And she's done preventively to, to raise antioxidants. So the key thing is, is it worth the time and energy for a person to try to raise their glutathione levels? And I think that's going to be a personal call. But you definitely would be more on the scale of considering it if you have an inflammatory condition or if you have inflammation, if you have uh, something associated with that, or you're just really into health prevention. And, uh, you know, there's different people that with different uh, value systems uh, for their for their health and how they want to you know, spend their resources and 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 that's the key factor there okay. so someone asked if there are any uh methylation issues that would cause you to not eat to not have glutathione i can't find it sorry not take glutathione is there any methylation issues to not take glutathione yeah no there's uh, when you look at the conversion of uh, methyl donors uh, and cysteine to cysteine, if people have methyl donor defects, they may be inefficient in making glutathione, but that doesn't them they that would actually have a greater need to take glutathione. So uh, methylation defects, which impact uh, cysteine uh, metabolism to cysteine by the transfer of one methyl group, one carbon group. Um, do happen, especially if you see serum high homocysteine, and those defects even strongly suggest you should take um, things to raise your glutathione, because if you have a methylation issue, that's another mechanism where your glutathione levels can be depleted. Okay, Ken, what's the percentage of population has SNPs and can't make glutathione? What percentage of population has single nucleotide polymorphisms that can't make glutathione? I'm not sure what the actual percentage is, but I can tell you it's, it's quite high. Uh, it doesn't mean they can't completely make glutathione. It just means they're less they're less efficient with them. So there really isn't this discovery of this main gene where like, oh my God, you have this gene, you cannot make it. So lots of people have different variants and different glutathione producing enzymes um, to make glutathione. And the problem is that we have all these labs doing these tests for single nucleotide polymorphisms, and they're just picking out the ones that are easy to do and are inexpensive. Like there's so many different SNPs with. Uh, the enzymes glutathione reductase and glutathione peroxidase and so many versions of that, we're not even measuring those. And the labs that are doing these genetic testings for SNPs, I really think are giving a false level of information because you, you can't you can't make much assumptions with what they're offering. So a lot of people have SNPs for all different pathways, including glutathione, but for the ones that have been discovered, none of them are significantly uh, so so significant that you're at significant risk for making it. At the end of the day, the strategy would be the same: sleep, exercise, do the things we talk about in the immune resilience protocol. If you if you just joined us, that's at drknews.drknews.com, um, and then um, look at the precursors and nutrients we we've been discussing. Okay, Jonah Lynn asked to that. Do other things besides food and sleep raise glutathione levels, like exercise, yoga, deep breathing? So the, main, so the things that raise glutathione levels will be things that actually put a demand on your antioxidant system. And uh, um, exercise is really the key, the key one. And the more intense you exercise, actually, and the more aggressive your radical production you use, the more aggressive your antioxidant reserves come in to, to quench that. So it really is 
it just those are the main lifestyle factors. Sleep sleep helps you not dis- have your enzymes work more efficiently, so you can make glutathione. Exercise boosts up your antioxidant enzymes to activate to produce it, and then um, uh, you know the diet you eat that is hopefully high in foods that are high in sulfur um, can really be a key factor as well. Okay, Christine. Can glutathione help with Hashimoto's? Yeah, can glutathione help with Hashimoto's? Well, absolutely. Um, so again, there's not like a large study published on glutathione. There are some studies on glutathione and Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and there's some in evidence that glutathione is a key mechanism where it prevents the oxidative stress pathways that are associated with this destruction of the thyroid gland. There's some studies with uh, cruciferous vegetables being given to patients that have thyroid cancer that also have oxidative stress in the thyroid gland, similar to Hashimoto's, and it's just shown to benefit the inflammatory response. But there has been like a large clinical trial that, that's given one group glutathione, one group, you know, a placebo, and then they monitor Hashimoto's and see if it, it helps. So theoretically, it should be um, important for all autoimmune disease patients because it's just, it's summary, it's at least an antioxidant. It helps modulate Treg cells. It helps the barriers from breaking down, which are all critical mechanisms for autoimmunity. So there's a lot of inference of the evidence that glutathione can be really beneficial to Hashimoto's patients and very little risk. Okay, Dr. Perlmutter spoke about glutathione IV helping Parkinson's. Do you have any info on that? So the question, Dr. Perlmutter talks about using IV glutathione for Parkinson's. Parkinson's. First of all, Dr. Perlmutter is awesome. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He's he's done some some breakthrough um, education and really showing the world how important glutathione is for Parkinson's disease. Because one of the things that glutathione does is glutathione stops the inflammatory reaction that's involved with developing what's called an alpha-synucleinopathy, where you get a buildup of alpha-synuclein, which then promotes Parkinson's disease. And, you know, in some, some conferences, you've had the privilege of seeing Dr. Perlmutter. He, he showed some case studies where they give IV glutathione, and some of these patients have an immediate change in their um, um, rigidity and stiffness and festination gait and, and so forth. Uh, it doesn't last forever. It's just for a short period of time. But it's just it was interesting because it shows how an, an, anti, an immediate inflammatory, anti-inflammatory compound can change neurodegenerative symptoms. It's not a cure. It's just... Uh, it's just uh, an expression that some people exhibit. Um, and, uh, you know, I can tell you one of the reasons I personally take glutathione all the time is for its neurodegenerative protection. So glutathione is essential to calm down brain inflammation, neuroinflammation, protect the blood-brain barrier as well. So um, Dr. Pomodoro was really uh, one of the key uh, physicians and educators that was using it and explaining people about using it over 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, let me see. Sorry. Liposomal vitamin C or oral? So, the, so liposomal vitamin C or oral doesn't really make much difference. Um, vitamin C is easy to absorb. So, you know, it's not so... It's, the, the things you want to use liposomal for are things that have a hard time getting through the gut barrier. So a liposome surrounds the compound um, with basically uh, phospholipids that allow it to easily penetrate the gut. Uh, vitamin C in a liposomal form, I don't know if it would make any sense. Vitamin C is very easy to absorb, very inexpensive, and has a tremendous impact right away. So I don't think you need to worry about a liposomal form of vitamin C. Okay. Um, can you please tell the difference 
between PQQ, CoQ10, and glutathione. Can I please tell the difference between PQQ, PQQ, CoQ10, CoQ10, and glutathione, and glutathione, and DD? Um, they're all they're all different. The PQQ, CoQ10, and glutathione are all working at different mechanisms. They all have an antioxidant effect, but they're not interrelated, as far as I understand them. Okay. Um... Sean, do polymorphisms or lack of or lack of presence in the glutathione genes change the way one needs to supplement or the amount they need to supplement? So the so the question is: Do um, gene uniquenesses, polymorphisms, impact the way you should try to raise your glutathione levels? Yeah, you need to supplement. Yeah. supplement. Yeah. So the answer is yes and no. Um, again, these these single nucleotide polymorphisms, where they look at like GPX one and, and variations of that. Um, has shown that your body could be a little bit less efficient in making glutathione, but it doesn't mean that it completely stops it. So you could have an, an, a gene that's inefficient, but you eat lots of sulfur-containing foods, you sleep well, you exercise, and your glutathione levels could be much, much higher than someone that doesn't have any gene uniquenesses, but they eat an inflammatory diet, never eat any precursor foods to raise glutathione, don't exercise, and have an inflammatory condition. The levels could be much lower. So it's just one variable, but it's not a variable enough by itself to make a significant um, you know, concern. Um, if you have a gene uniqueness, um, you know, you have some, some, some minor uh, risk for raising glutathione levels, but it's not a major clinical significance. What happens is a lot of people go to functional medicine practitioners and they don't really understand these and they just do the gene test and then that justifies putting lots of patients on lots of supplements and I think it's it's uh, not substantiated. Okay, um, Elsie, do we, do we need both glutathione and NAC? Do you need both glutathione and NAC? Um, it's just being more aggressive if you do. Technically, you just need NAC to raise glutathione, but if you take an absorbable form of glutathione, like a liposomal form, um, then you immediately raise those levels in your system. So, um, it, again, if you want to be very, very aggressive, you can take all the different things we talked about, the nutrients, the botanicals, actual glutathione, and NAC. If you're just trying to, hey, I want to prevent myself and get my glutathione levels up, and what's the most uh, inexpensive and quickest way to do it, easiest way to do it with the most evidence, then it would just be taking in acetylcysteine. Okay, a couple people have asked, can you take it if you have a CBS SNP mutation and have trouble with sulfur? There are, okay, so there are some people that have genetic uniquenesses where they can't handle sulfur. And in those scenarios, you, you may have a very hard time taking glutathione. So there's a small subset of people in the population that cannot handle golf, any form of sulfur or supplementation. Um, so whether it's glutathione or alpha-cysteine, uh, acetylcysteine, uh, alpha-lipoic acid, they just have a hard time with it. And for those individuals, um, the other strategy is just to raise your vitamin C and selenium levels and then take botanicals that help the body uh, activate those enzymes. So you can take things like cordyceps and guticala and milk thistle uh, as a strategy if you can't handle taking um, sulfur supplements, so, uh, sulfur-based nutraceuticals. Okay, Genevieve says, I'd like to know how to pare down supplements. I feel like you've helped me so much with these talks, but it's adding to my list of pills per day. <laughs> yes, this is the so the so Genevieve is saying that how do I cut down my supplements? Because um, you know, and, and listen, I get it. You know, when you hear about supplements, 
oh, I want to try that. I want to try that. And, you know, a lot of people end up that are into their health or people that have chronic diseases, they have an apothecary in their own home of supplements. <laughs> they can open up their whole, whole food section. Um, I, don't to, I don't know how to answer that for you. Uh, you know, some of us have fun experimenting with different supplements, see how we feel doing different things. Um, but I understand what you're saying. As a, as a practitioner, I see patients coming in, and sometimes they, they come in with, like, a huge bag, like a Santa bag, and I'm going, what's in there? <laughs> and it basically, it's, like, 50 different supplements that they take or don't know what to do with. So that happens all the time. So uh, I would say um, depends where you're at. If, if you if you are just pretty much healthy and you just want to improve your antioxidant reserves, then an acetyl cysteine would be good. If you have chronic inflammation, it could be one of the things that helps you with your inflammation, so it could be more of a key essential nutrient for you. What I do a lot of times with my patients that are on so many pills, I have some patients that are like, oh my God, I can't, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to stop them. I, go, I, I ask them, if you're going to go on a trip and you can only take four supplements in your bag, which four would they be? And I've seen patients have serious anxiety attacks when I've asked them that because um, they just don't know they don't know what to do. But that might be a good way to think about it. You know, um, at the end of the day, you know, you you, you uh, what you're going through, a lot of people are going through. I don't have I don't have a good answer for you. Um, you're just gonna have to do some trial error and experiment what you think works best for you. Okay, Janice, what is the role slash importance of glutathione in phase one and or phase two detoxification? So what's the role of glutathione in phase one and phase two? Glutath uh, detoxification. detoxification. Yeah. yeah, okay. So we use the word detoxification, natural medicine, all the time. And detoxification is is uh, actually called hepatic biotransformation in the, in the literature. And what hepatic biotransformation means is that a chemical compound that's toxic gets converted by the liver to something that's not toxic. So that's called biotransformation, hepatic biotransformation. And there's two phases for that. One's called phase one and one's called phase two. And the phase one pathway, what happens is the toxic compound comes in. And actually what happens is it gets, it gets oxidized and reduced. It actually gets converted to a free radical to change the structure of it. And in that point, it immediately goes into phase two. And phase two, phase one is like a funnel where you have inflammation. Phase two is like a coin sorter. And you have uh, different um, pathways. One's called, for example, methylation, where they add a carbon group to it. One's called acetylation, they add two carbon groups to it. One's called sulfation, where they add a sulfur amino acid group to it. And one's called glutathione conjugation, where they add glutathione to it. There's actually more than those, but those are the, those are the main ones. So what glutathione does, it actually helps with um, the part where a phase one end product gets produced to a free radical. And it has to do that to change the shape of it so it can then bind to one of these phase two end products. And then something like glutathione binds to it. And then that compound is now water soluble. So we can eliminate through our sweat and through our urine uh, and uh, through our fecal pathways. And that is the concept of detoxification or biotransformation. So glutathione is critical because uh, it's, it's if, if you have like a... Well, if you get a toxic substance or a certain compound or medication um, that you take, you have to be able to clear that stuff out. And that's where um, some of these phase two pathways like methylation, acetylation, sulfation, glutathione, conjugation come in. And uh, you have to have healthy amounts of glutathione to do that. So that's also another concern. If you get exposed, if you have a huge toxic load, you may want to you know, raise your glutathione levels to make sure your system um, transfers that. Um, there's some medications that are metabolized specifically through glutathione conjugation. So people can get over overdosed with medication or adverse reactions to medication because of that defect. Um, most drugs have their pharmacokinetics listed, and it tells you which phase two pathways um, get metabolized. Um, when you look at things like the Vizigent Death Reference, 
with medications and things that are published on it, they usually tell you. So it's important for that way. The other key thing is if, if a compound goes through phase one pathway and gets oxidized into a free radical so it can then bind to a phase two to be metabolized and cleared, the, um, if you have, let's say, a defect in methylation, we don't have enough methyl donors because maybe you don't have enough B vitamins in your system to help with transferring one carbon, it's called methylation, then that free radical is in your system now, and that can cause the inflammation and destruction. So glutathione can also help quench and neutralize those compounds if they're produced. So unrelated to the immune effects and antioxidant effects, you know, one of the key essential pathways of glutathione is how it helps us uh, clear out toxic chemicals. So I think I answered yeah. that. Yeah, I spent too much time on that, sorry. Okay, if people get low blood sugar crashes easily, can NAC worsen low blood sugar? So NAC doesn't really have a significant impact in lowering blood sugar, but alpha lipoic acid will. So let me explain. Alpha lipoic acid is another compound that's been shown to raise glutathione, but also alpha lipoic acid also sensitizes the insulin receptor. Um, so it's actually alpha lipoic acid is very effective in lowering blood sugar levels with people that have um, prediabetes or diabetes um, as a nutraceutical. Lots of good studies published on that. But alpha lipoic acid also helps provide precursors um, to help build glutathione. So I think you're not as much, you're not really worried with N-acetylcysteine or the other compounds that raise glutathione, but if you're using alpha lipoic acid as a strategy to raise glutathione, realize that it does have a blood sugar lowering effect by enhancing insulin receptor site signaling. Okay. Um, do some people have so many toxins that glutathione would overload their system in detoxing at one time? Do people have so many toxins? Or... Do some people have so many toxins that glutathione will overload their system in detoxing no. at one time? Um, so, so let me. So the question is: Do some people have so many toxins where glutathione is going to overload their system? Overload their system? Uh, no, I don't think that's that's even possible. I think that's just what people assume when people adversely react to taking glutathione because of the sulfur part of it. Um, you you know so I would I would say if someone someone is having a reaction to glutathione it's more of their issue with in, in, in intolerance to sulfur than it is like the overload with toxins. Okay, Elaine asks companies that sell glutathione suppositories say that to use those overnight because that's when glutathione demand is highest for repair and regeneration. Do you think there's truth to that? I don't know if there's any truth to having to use a glutathione at night because it it changes that's when you're at most need for it. Um, I think it's just speculation. Uh, you're actually at high, most need for glutathione when you have an oxidative stress response, not when you're sleeping. So um, your body's obviously recovering when you're asleep, but I don't think that statement's accurate. Okay, um, Marlies, please address the role. Oh, crud. Please address the role of glutathione in viral diseases, for instance, EBV and the central nervous system. So. Please explain the role of glutathione in viral diseases. Okay. So there's been some studies with influenza um, where they showed glutathione can decrease some of the symptoms um, when given. Um, so th there's a couple of those types of papers out there. But it was, I mean, not, nothing dramatic. Um, but for the most part, when someone has a, a, a virus, um, and this is where COVID-19 is getting very, you know, the focus on COVID-19 or... Um, coronavirus is that 
it destroys the lung epithelium and creates a huge cytokine storm and lots of oxidative stress. So there's been a lot of there's been some some attention given to glutathione as one of the key things to consider when people are trying nutraceuticals because of those mechanisms specifically, protecting the lung barrier from breaking down, uh, helping modulate the cytokine storm, uh, dealing with giving more pro uh, or giving more antioxidants for the oxidative stress of the infection. But as far as um, glutathione, it's not known to have any direct antiviral activity. And it doesn't necessarily um, activate the immune system. It just module. It helps support T-Rex cells with modulate the immune system. So the key thing with it is that it's probably going to have um, some impact on reducing the amount of tissue inflammation and destruction in the body when someone has a virus. But like you're still going to have interferon go up, and people are still going to have a fever uh, and to try activate their immune system. And glutathione's not going to have any impact on that. So just kind of think of it as putting out the fire from the inflammation caused by an infection, but it doesn't necessarily directly act against the virus itself. But one of the key things where people end up maybe potentially going from, uh, when you look at things like coronavirus or infection into a severe state, is that they may not have enough antioxidant reserves to protect their tissues, and that's why uh, things happen. Also why autoimmunity can start to express with people that have uh, viral infections and so forth. Okay, Sarah says, um, NAC is much cheaper than liposomal glutathione. Yes. Why not? Shouldn't everybody just take NAC then? Yes, that was the, that was my point. So the question is, you know, NAC is much cheaper than liposomal glutathione. Shouldn't just everyone take NAC? So that was that's that was the point I was trying to make. I was saying if you're looking at the most impactful, most evidence-based, and cheapest way to look at factors of effect, uh, benefits, and, and expense, NAC cysteine would make the most sense. I can tell you clinically though. Liposomal glutathione works great. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't seem to work better um, in my personal experience working with patients. So, especially when there's an acute inflammatory response, but you can absolutely raise um, glutathione. So, just to summarize, the the cheapest and the the, the 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 best way based on the evidence published that we know about to raise glutathione by one single inexpensive substance would be NAC found at almost every single health food store found on Amazon. But I think clinically, uh, if you can get access to liposomal glutathione, it's much more effective. Okay, and then Susan says, I was told that NAC is not well absorbed through the gut, digestive system. Is that true? NAC is absorbed through the gut. Also, amino acids are absorbed through the gut. It's just glutathione is hard to absorb because it's cysteine plus glutamic acid and glutamine. It's a huge tripeptide, so it's a hard time getting absorbed but you can absolutely absorb all sulfur amino acids and, and acetylcysteine, no problem. Okay, uh, help people ask, what are the symptoms of sulfur intolerance? Symptoms of sulfur intolerance is when they take glutathione off a lipoic acid, they feel much worse, they get headaches, they feel like um, they have no energy, um, they get swollen, the body hurts, that's the biggest clue. You don't usually see it as much with diet, you just see it when they start to try to take supplements that contain sulfur. Okay, so glutathione is both an antioxidant and an anti-inflammatory? Yes, so glutathione, so everything that's an antioxidant is an anti-inflammatory, just in general, and glutathione serves both properties. So glutathione protects the tissues in the body, but because of its antioxidant properties, it also calms inflammation, but it also directly impacts on T-reg cells, which modulate inflammation. So glutathione is both an antioxidant, both uh, an anti-inflammatory compound, and it's also used to support biotransformation to help to clear toxins out of the body or pollutants out of the body. Um, so it has lots of key regulatory functions. 
So if you do react to sulfur, what is the best way to raise glutathione? So once again, uh, this question came up earlier. If you do react to sulfur, what's the best way to raise glutathione? Then you can use things like vitamin C, selenium, and then you can use botanicals that raise glutathione, um, which would be things like milk thistle, cordyceps, and guticala. Okay. Um, what does the L stand for on my IM injection bottle, L-glutathione? L-glutathione is just in reference to the shape of the glutathione, the structure of it. So it's just an L form. Says so related to the biochemical shape, they use the term L. Okay. Why are some people having negative effects when taking glutathione? Why are some people having negative effects taking glutathione? I don't know. It could be the sulfur related issue. Um, it's pretty rare to hear that. So I'm not sure okay. why that would happen. Okay. Um, liposomal glutathione seems to always come in soy or sunflower based phosphatidylcholine. Yes. If one is soy or sunflower intolerant, can this still be still be safely consumed or will contribute to autoimmune reactivity? Yeah, so if you look at the different types of liposomal versions, whether they come from a soy base or not, and they have phospholipids, that's not the same thing as soy protein. So most people that even have soy intolerances can, can tolerate those types of compounds. And, you know, when you look at soy protein and soy protein isolates, there's like 28 different soy proteins and branches of the soy protein that some people react to parts of it versus other parts of it. And when you're actually looking at the phospho-tidal portion of the soy, that's not the same thing as the protein that many people react to. So you can you can absolutely uh, expect not to have any reactions, even though you may have reactions to soy protein um, with liposomal forms of glutathione. Okay, a lot of people want to get in to see it. Um... I think we have time for just how many more? A couple more. I have some here. I just wanted to make sure I covered. So one of the questions, uh, um, do we take? Do we need to take more glutathione support as we age? I would say yes, because uh, studies show every decade our levels start to come down. How do you know if glutathione is working? That's another question that, that is asked that comes up. Um, you, you, again, you don't. It's one of those things where you know, when you take an antioxidant, you don't necessarily know if it's working or not. It's, it's, uh, it's The research shows that it has an anti-inflammatory effect and a protective effect on the body. And we know studies clearly show when people progress into an inflammatory destructive state from any kind of inflammatory condition, there's a direct uh, measurement of glutathione levels being depleted. And with a gut barrier and lung barrier and blood brain barrier breakdown, it's directly related to glutathione levels being depleted. So you're not going to necessarily... Um, for most people, when they take things to raise a glutathione, they're not going to notice a significant benefit. On the other hand, if you do notice a significant benefit, like your inflammation goes down, you feel better, you have more energy, that really means you probably have some inflammation, and then you want to increase your dose. Okay. Can taking liposomal glutathione help idiopathic neuropathy? Can taking um, liposomal, liposomal glutathione help idiopathic neuropathy? Maybe, maybe not. So idiopathic neuropathy means that they really don't know the reason why the nerve damage is happening. Um, a really common cause of idiopathic neuropathy that people overlook is an autoimmune mechanism. Um, so that's one thing. And, you know, with idiopathic neuropathy, I've worked with lots of cases of idiopathic neuropathy. They're all different. Um, <laughs> Some patients, when they do an anti-inflammatory um, diet approach, bombard on taking anti-inflammatory nutraceuticals, it helps calm down some of their pain and inflammation. And for other people, nothing makes a difference. Even taking um, corticosteroids and significant anti-inflammatory um, compounds, pharmaceutical uh, compounds, have very little effect. 
So, uh, and also uh, there's a difference between small fiber or large fiber neuropathies. C fiber, small fiber neuropathies are, are really don't respond to much of anything to calm down the inflammation and pain. Um, large fibers, uh, large fiber neuropathies seem to do much better with an anti-inflammatory approach. So that's another factor in it. But overall, um, it still may provide some protection and protecting neurons from further degeneration. Because although that most people have neuropathy, think about the pain, um, the function of that nerve being damaged is also critical. And um, but physiologically speaking, having antioxidants can be very protective against the neuron, whatever the mechanism of the idiopathic neuropathy may be. So I would encourage taking it, but uh, if, if I had it, I would take it, but, I, 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 but it may not help with pain, especially if you have C-fiber neuropathy. Okay. okay. Yeah, is there any more? Yeah, there's a lot more. It's hard to shuffle through Thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, it's, always, it's always so nice to see people interested. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> people interested in glutathione. Who would have thought? Uh, <laughs> I, I love glutathione. <laughs> A lot of people want to know the brand you're talking about. Everyone's very grateful and thankful. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, the other thing with sublingual glutathione. Sublingual glutathione is another question that people have had. Sublingual glutathione, it, I'm not sure about. Have you, have you sublingual? There isn't, so there isn't any significant studies to tell us if sublingual glutathione is better than one way or the other. And I haven't seen any dramatic impacts with patients taking sublingual glutathione. So I, I'm not uh, for or against it. I just haven't, hasn't, seem to be that great of a difference if it's sublingual or not. I think you still have issues with absorption through the mucosa, even if you take a liposomal form. So, I mean, if you take a sublingual form. So I think a liposomal sublingual might work well, but just the actual glutathione being a sublingual form by itself, I don't think would make any impact in, in absorption versus the other. Yeah. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll have uh, different topics soon. And uh, once again, thank you, thank you, everyone, and thank you for all the positive comments. And... Uh, I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.